As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. This is our ninth episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis, and our focus here is on his international fame. Where did C.S. Lewis's idea for the screw tape letters come from? I think most people have ideas when they are distracted. In other words, they are driving, they are they are reading or something like that. Lewis had this particular idea during what seems to be a rather boring sermon in his church in um, Oxford. Um, and it was one of those things. Um, Lewis, in effect, thought, what if we take this age-old dispute about how on earth a Christian can become a better person, instead of looking at it from the Godward side, looking at it from the temptation side. In other words, what can Christians learn about how to grow in their faith by imagining somebody wanting to stop them growing in their faith? And so Lewis had this wonderful idea of, in effect, writing a slightly humorous, um, almost parody of traditional approaches to spirituality, which saw it from the devil's side of the debate. And it was astonishing. I mean, basically, it was so innovative that people were delighted by it. So it, it is fresh, it's imaginative, and also each of the individual chapters are quite short. They're originally published as individual um, letters in a Christian newspaper. And because each of these were quite short, uh, Lewis was really able to keep them tightly under control and make sure they didn't ramble. They're very focused chapters. And do you think it was that innovation that is the means by which it became so popular, do you think? Absolutely, especially in North America. People just said, hey, there's something fresh about Lewis. Um, We've never seen anything like this. And and they they devoured him. And um, in effect, this created an appetite for what Lewis was writing. And of course, that meant that Lewis felt he was under pressure to write more, which of course, I'm very glad to say he did. But uh, this this is very often spoken of as Lewis's breakout book. In other words, he'd published before. Um, uh, the the um, problem of pain was well received, but um, this book was sensational. It really um, was innovative and imaginative. And it, it, in effect, said here is not simply a very able religious writer, but a new voice saying something interesting and exciting. 
And how did his writings end up in America? Well, Lewis never went to America at all. I mean, and we don't understand that. And basically, Lewis was not able to give a promotional tour this after all, the Second World War. Um, and also, he didn't see any reason to go to America. Basically, this book took off by itself. And it secured wide media coverage, including some uh, reviews saying something like, hey, this is new and exciting. This is the go-to person for a culturally relevant and personally engaging form of the Christian faith. It's new. And in fact, we know the BBC received some letters from its uh, uh, US representatives saying, C.S. Lewis is getting a reputation as, as a, a prophet of a new kind of Christianity. Watch him. He's good. So clearly it did really have deep popular appeal, but we don't fully understand how this happened. Why did Lewis decide to turn his broadcast lectures into a book, which obviously became mere Christianity? Well, this this reworking of the original broadcast talks happened while Lewis was writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and Lewis had already published some of these broadcast talks um, as individual volumes and had left them there. Didn't, didn't want to do anything more about it. But he began to realise that they had a certain coherence and that this could be a viable book in its own right. Now, obviously, they needed re-editing um, and, uh, and they needed to be given a more, a more complex structure in the sense of trying to explain why there are four books. But actually, it worked very well. And what we're dealing with here is a series of t broadcast talks characterised by clarity, brevity and concision, which in effect transferred very well when he wrote them up. In fact, if you compare the original broadcast talks with the text of mere Christianity, there are points at which Lewis has made significant changes, but actually on the whole, they were good enough to go already. Mm. And how was the book received? Well, the book was well received um, and it, it in effect established Lewis as a solid Christian apologist. And quickly, it began to be seen as a, a very clear, a very well written and very accessible account of what Christians believe, but oriented towards those who are not churchgoers, who are not really um, first hand Christians, but rather new Christianity indirectly. And what Lewis is really doing is trying to move cultural Christians who know something about it into the position of being believing Christians. And one of the most remarkable things about it is actually Lewis's mere Christianity continues to be very significant and now goes beyond mere cultural Christians to those who know nothing about it, but find in Lewis a very accessible entry point to Christianity. So do you think that was his intended audience all along, the, the non-Christians who had never encountered Christianity? It's quite possible, because if you look at the way mere Christianity is written, he is assuming that his, 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 um, his readers may be familiar, familiar with the vocabulary of Christianity, but not have penetrated beyond that. And so what Lewis is trying to do is to amplify their vision and understanding of what Christianity really is. And what he does is basically assume that his, his readers only have a superficial acquaintance with Christianity, and he is using this superficial acquaintance as a way of opening up what Christianity is really all about. 
I mean, clearly, mere Christianity was very popular and it's still read today. But you do point out some of the sort of slight weaknesses of this book in, in C.S. Lewis Alive. What are some of those weaknesses? Do you think? Well, I think that the real problem is that the audience has changed. This is not a criticism of C.S. Lewis. It's simply that um, the language he uses works very well for a 1940s audience for BBC. But um, Britain and indeed the world has changed and language has changed. Concerns have changed. So what Lewis was focusing on is still actually, I think, very important. But actually, other concerns have emerged and Lewis doesn't really engage those. But there are other points. I mean, and Lewis comes across as a very male voice, a very middle class voice. And actually, that, that is alienating for some people. So again, I think we have a problem there. And also, Lewis is making assumptions about his audience, which don't necessarily work um, nowadays. And we're talking about 80 years afterwards. And a lot has happened during that time. So these are all things over which Lewis simply didn't have control. The point is that both the broadcast talks and mere Christianity spoke powerfully to a particular moment in time. And the problem is that moment in time is now a long way away. And there's no point in rewriting mere Christianity. We simply respect it for what is. But I think what most apologists now do is, in effect, take Lewis's arguments and rewrite them in their own terms, occasionally quoting from C.S. Lewis, where the words have not been diminished by the passage of time. I think one of the arguments that you pick up on is C.S. Lewis's kind of famous Jesus Christ being either a liar, a lunatic or a lord. Um, you point out that there is perhaps another option that Lewis doesn't explore that he maybe knew about, but for some reason doesn't seem to include in the broadcast talks. Well, that's right. I mean, one option simply is that Jesus was um, um, not a, a liar, uh, just slightly deluded, you know, and that's what he thought he was. Uh, see, it's not a question of him being a liar. He, he may have thought this was right and was wrong in doing so. Um, so I think modern scholarship has, has pointed that out as being perhaps a weak point in Lewis's argument. But I think we do need to say that Lewis can be defended at this point. I think what Lewis is saying is we can't have this popular view of Jesus as a kind of nice guy mm. who encourages us all to be nice to others because he's saying some things that imply he is rather more than this. Um, I think Lewis's argument could have been strengthened by appealing to the New Testament as a whole. Lewis doesn't do that. But I think that nevertheless, people who use C.S. Lewis, for example, in their books or in their sermons can, in effect, um, use Lewis and make this point rather effectively. Alistair, one of the other pieces of work that came out around this time is The Great Divorce. Would you say just a little bit about that? Because it's, I suppose, in some senses, a little bit like the Narnia Chronicles in that it's very imaginative, but it's picking up really important Christian themes, isn't it? Well, it is. And I've met many people who would say that for them, this is Lewis's best book. I think it, it really uses Lewis's um, standard apologetic approach, which is to say, Readers, imagine that this is right. Let's enter into it and see what it feels like and then ask how this reflects on Christianity. Because in effect, what Lewis is doing is creating this idea of a supposal. Suppose Christianity is right. How does it help us understand things or feel about our world? And in many ways, the great divorce is a bit like a mental experiment. It's saying, think yourself into the situation. What light does it cast on things? 
And I think one of the points that really comes out from this is, is that Lewis is a very imaginative writer who's able to kind of way pitch some Christian ideas in ways that will connect up with uh, his imagined readership. And one of them is basically um, how difficult it is for us to imagine what heaven is like. And what Lewis is trying to do is to kind of way stimulate our process of imagination and think through what it might be uh, like to actually be in heaven. I suppose another set of books that really draw quite heavily on imagination is the Ransom Trilogy. And why did he write the Ransom Trilogy? Because that in some ways feels like quite a departure from his more apologetic works, doesn't it? It does. And I think, I think as scholarship has increasingly come to see these three books as really important in in both shaping um, Lewis's vocation as a writer and apologist, but also as works in their own right, because they, they are quite dense and develop a lot of very interesting ideas. And in fact, in them, Lewis mounts a very important critique of scientism. But let, let's, let's talk about these works. Um, what Lewis is discovering here is that you can use a powerful narrative to critique a worldview. Now, the person he is critiquing here is H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells wrote many books of science fiction which embrace what I would loosely call a kind of naive evolutionary optimism. And Lewis knows that. And so what Lewis is doing is taking the genre that H.G. Wells mastered, in other words, science fiction, and writing science fiction to critique the ideas that H.G. Wells is developing. And so what Lewis is saying in these books is, look, um, science does have its problems. That in effect, when we use science, very often we use it very, very badly, and we end up being trapped in some very disturbing situations. So one of the things that we see here is Lewis doing some very serious theological and apologetic reflection, but within the context of an engaging narrative. And again, I've met people who think, for example, Perilandra is one of the best things he's written because it's so fresh, so imaginative. But in fact, what Lewis is doing here is exploring the potential of a well-told story to undermine somebody else's worldview. Now, do you think as obviously Lewis's fame began to build and he wrote more and more popular literature, did that affect his reputation among his Oxford colleagues, do you think? I think it did. And I think also it affected Lewis himself uh, as he became increasingly famous. Let me talk about that first, because this is something that Lewis scholarship doesn't talk about enough. Um, Lewis, I think, realised he could not cope with fame. And so he, in effect, went to see someone he called a sort of personal confessor um, who actually helped him to cope with this. But Lewis began to realize that um, the fame his works were creating was something that he had not been prepared for. He needed somebody to help him, in effect, uh, A, cope with this, not get arrogant, and B, keep on writing despite the the fact he was deeply uncomfortable about the fame that his um, his fame his works have created. So we need to be aware of that. Lewis was not happy with being a celebrity. He didn't like that. But yes, you're right. I mean, a very important point here is the effect of Lewis's um, popular works of 1940s on his academic reputation, because his his academic colleagues at Oxford, particularly at Magdalen College, said, "Look, um, you're being employed." to teach and to write academic books. 
what you are doing is writing things like the Screwtape Letters or um, The Great Divorce. And these are not academic works. And in effect, we want to see you write these academic books. Um, you're not pulling your weight. And Lewis, we know, was um, seen increasingly as being academically lightweight by his colleagues. And um, eventually, Lewis realized there was a very serious problem here. And so he wrote a very significant um, academic work, um, which is basically um, the, the massive study of English Renaissance literature, uh, for which he actually was awarded the Fellowship of the British Academy. Um, but there was a period during the Second World War and really Lewis wasn't delivering the academic works he was meant to. And actually at Oxford, his reputation went downhill. And that, I'm afraid, is one of the reasons why Lewis was receptive to moving to the University of Cambridge, because he realised he had burnt his boats at Oxford. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that experience of, you know, sort of feeling disjointed at Oxford in a future episode. But as we come to the end of this episode, would you just say a little bit about why you think his apologetic works are still so relevant today? Well, I think we've touched on some of those themes. Um, Lewis clearly writes very clearly. And that's a very important starting point. But more importantly, he has internalized the Christian faith and is able to express it using arguments, using images, using analogies. So he's somebody who really is able to speak about his faith in at multiple levels and in multiple modes. And then thirdly, as a former atheist, He's able to engage with real questions and show how Christianity connects up. So in effect, you have somebody who is knowledgeable, articulate, able to use multiple modes of expression and is aware of the questions his audience is going to be asking. That is unusual in an apologist. Many apologists are technical people who are able to give good rational responses to questions. Lewis writes literature which is apologetic. Alistair, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm.